0: Welcome to another episode of 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. This one, titled, Those Amazing Stories Behind the Songs, promises to give you the backstory behind a bunch of great music. Some rock, some country, some classics, some folk songs from days gone by. We promise a fun trip down memory lane, and we hope that more often than not, you'll say, I never knew. This episode, which is the first of many, Because there is almost endless material in this category, is a spinoff of our series called Those Amazing Urban Legends, which you'll find in our archives, providing you with tales ranging from the legend of Bunny Man to the Killer Biscuits. They all continue to do very well for us. Few artists brought black, white, and country together, like Ray Charles. He was a road performer in nightclubs in 1959 with a label, Atlantic, and lots of music but no hits, until one night in Brownsville, Pennsylvania, when he found himself running short on material. He began vamping on his keyboard to kill some time, in the process initiating an impromptu call-and-response with his backup quartet, the Raylettes. Listen, he said, I'm going to fool around, you just follow me. Each time Charles would moan an ooh or an ah, the Raylettes would respond in kind, with an ever-increasing sense of urgency writes Kent Hartman in his terrific book, The Wrecking Crew, which outlines the careers of a very talented group of studio musicians in L.A. who gave us more legendary songs than you could ever have imagined. We referenced The Wrecking Crew in our show notes. Getting back to Ray and the Ray Raylets, now the crowd was into it. Everyone was up on the dance floor, and Ray, who wasn't prone to try out new songs on his audience before fully orchestrating them, was sensing he had something big. After adding some formal lyrics to accompany the ooing and the eyeing, Ray managed to take a quick break from the road to record the song during a hastily arranged session in a New York studio where both he and Atlantic felt they had a hit on their hands. And they were right. what I Say shot to number six on the national charts despite being blacklisted by dozens of stations around the country and became Ray Charles's first gold record. And that's the backstory on Ray Charles' what I Say. Turn around, bright eyes. Remember Bonnie Tyler's great song, Total Eclipse of the Heart? Who could forget it? A terrific power ballad from a woman who has just fallen hard for a special guy, right? The song's writer and meatloaf collaborator, Jim Steinman, called his number a Wagnerian-like onslaught of sound and emotion. In an interview with People, And American songwriter's Jim Beviglia, christened it a garment-rending, chest-beating, emotionally exhausting ballad. What most people don't know is that Total Eclipse of the Heart was a vampire love song. The song was perfect for Welsh-born Bonnie Tyler, who took it to number one back in 1983, and has sold over 6 million copies at last count. When Steinman featured Total Eclipse in his Broadway musical Dance of the Vampires, a flop that cost $12 million, in 2002, he opened up about the song to Playbill, stating... With total eclipse of the heart, I was trying to come up with a love song, and I remembered I actually wrote that to be a vampire love song. Its original title was Vampires in Love, because I was working on the musical of Nosferatu, the other great vampire story. If anyone listens to the lyrics, they are really like vampire lines. It's all about the darkness, the power of darkness, and love's place in dark. If you saw her music video, which I didn't because I'm not a big fan of vampires or boarding schools, That was a giveaway on a vampire theme. It was filmed on location at the Holloway Sanatorium, a large Victorian Gothic hospital near Virginia Water, Surrey, England. The video features Bonnie Tyler clad in white, dreaming or fantasizing about what appeared to be students in a boys' boarding school. A long-running urban legend is that the boy who appears throughout the video and who shakes Tyler's hand at the end is former Italian footballer Gianfranco Zola. In a 2012 interview, Zola confirmed he did not appear in the video. This next one is known as the Anniversary Song, often confused with the Anniversary Waltz, which is especially easy to do since they're both waltzes. Most people in the know refer to it by its starting lines, Oh, how we danced on the night we were wed. We vowed our true love, though a word wasn't said. And wouldn't you know, some wise guys have offered up similar lyrics over the years like, Oh, how we danced on the night we were wed. We danced and we danced till we fell out of bed. And this one. Oh, how we danced on the night we were wed. I need a wife like a hole in the head. Al Jolson and Saul Chaplin wrote the lyrics for this song in 1946 and have been pretty much given the credit for the song in its entirety. But the song, as Alan Saul knew, went all the way back to 1880, written by a composer named Ivanovici. And given the title Danube Waves. For years this music which has become synonymous with weddings and romance today was played in circuses to accompany high wire trapeze acts. You can sort of visualize that with this piano version. Maybe in a way, marriage and romance is a lot like a high-wire circus act. You never know who's gonna fall and when. Once a song becomes a widely recognized hit, its popularity can seem virtually inevitable. How could that song not have been a hit? Writes Paul Kingsbury in behind the song Crazy in 2007. Certainly that would seem to be the case with Crazy the country standard recorded definitively by Patsy Cline for Decca Records in 1961. Cline's hit recording swings with such velvety finesse, and her voice throbs and aches so well that the entire production sounds absolutely effortless. Actually, it was anything but. Then, 28 years old and coming off her first number one hit, I Fall to Pieces, after six years of ups and downs in the music industry, Cline did not quickly warm to the song Crazy. She much preferred Funny How Time Slips Away from the same yet unknown writer. Crazy must have seemed like a consolation prize. However, when Hank Cochran pitched Crazy to Owen Bradley, Klein's producer, he was quickly sold, which just goes to show what great ears Owen Bradley had. The demo was slow and syrupy. The phrasing was all over the place, sometimes ahead of the beat, sometimes behind it, stretching syllables out or biting them short. Sometimes he was closer to reciting the lyrics than singing them. Yet somehow Owen Bradley heard a potential hit in that. Patsy Cline, however, did not. Although Bradley persuaded her to try the song at his Quonset Hut studio on August 21, 1961, she couldn't get a handle on it during a four-hour session. Part of her difficulty might have been that she'd been in a horrific auto accident just two months before in which she was badly banged up. When she came into the studio, she was on crutches it hurt to hit the high notes. In addition to Patsy's injury, says Harold Bradley, the Country Music Hall of Fame guitarist and Owen's brother, the other thing that made this session hard was that my brother would refine the track as we went along. There was no written music for crazy, so Owen would come out of the control room and say, why don't you guys try this? After four hours, Owen Bradley and Nashville's A-team pickers nailed it, where the demo had wobbled boozily Bradley's arrangement swung in a lush, sophisticated way. However, it still lacked a lead vocal. That came three weeks later, on September 15th, when Patsy overdubbed a pitch-perfect, emotional performance in a single take. Only a month later, Patsy wrote to a friend, They say crazy is a smash. Music Reporter has it top 30 C&W already, and Music Vendor has it already in pop C&W charts. I'm real glad but can't hardly believe it's happening to me. The song would go on to reach number two in Billboard's country chart and number nine in pop. More significantly, of course, it's become a standard, covered by such luminaries as Loretta Lynn, Linda Ronstadt, Cassandra Wilson, Diana Krall, and the writer himself, William Willie Nelson, who has had the good sense to lean heavily on Patsy Cline and Owen Bradley's masterful arrangement ever since. Have you heard the urban legend about what inspired Phil Collins' huge hit, In the Air Tonight? Well, it goes like this. Apparently Collins had a brush with a man on the beach who refused to save a drowning swimmer. Later he wrote the song and then personally invited the same man to a concert so he could embarrass him in front of the public with the song. Sound crazy? Right, it is crazy. Phil Collins' first solo single wasn't written about the singer's brush with a man who refused point-blank to save a drowning swimmer. And, according to Collins, he most definitely didn't invite the man to stand front row in the concert to be verbally berated by In the Air Tonight. Instead, the song is simply a tense, introspective look at Collins' divorce from his first wife. Collins swears by the story that he pulled together the lyrics in a snap during a studio recording session, and laughs off the rumors swirling around the origins of In the Air Tonight. The lyrics of the song take the form of a dark monologue directed towards an unnamed person. Well, if you told me you were drowning, I would not lend a hand. I've seen your face before, my friend, but I don't know if you know who I am. Well I was there and I saw what you did. I saw it with my own two eyes. So you can wipe off that grin, I know where you've been. It's all been a pack of lies. Ask any guitarist who knows his chops and he can play Hilton Valentine's opening riff for the Animals version of House of the Rising Sun, an old folk song that came from the American South back in the 30s and, after rising through folk music, finally merged with rock and, using the Animals version, rose to number one on the charts in 1964 in the U.S. and the U.K. Like many classic folk ballads, the House of the Rising Sun is of uncertain authorship the song describes the hard times of a girl who was pretty much cast aside by her parents and had to resort to a life of prostitution to make ends meet musicologists say that it's based on the tradition of broadside ballads and thematically it has some resemblance to the 16th century ballad the unfortunate rake house of the rising sun was said to have been known by miners in 1905 The oldest published version of the lyrics is that printed by Robert Winslow Gordon in 1925 in a column, Old Songs That Men Have Sung, in Adventure Magazine. The lyrics of that version begin, There is a house in New Orleans. It's called the Rising Sun. It's been the ruin of many a poor girl. Great God, I know, I'm one. The oldest known recording of the song under the title Rising Sun Blues is by Appalachian artists Clarence Tom Ashley and Gwen Foster, who recorded it for Vocalion Records on the 6th of September, 1933. Ashley said he had learned it from his grandfather, Enoch Ashley. Roy Acuff, an early day friend and apprentice of Ashley's, learned it from him and recorded it as Rising Sun on the 3rd of November, 1938. The song was among those collected by folklorist Alan Lomax, who, along with his father, was a curator of the Archive of American Folk Song for the Library of Congress. On an expedition with his wife to eastern Kentucky, Lomax set up his recording equipment in Middlesboro, Kentucky, in the house of singer and activist Tillman Cadle. He recorded a performance by Georgia Turner, the 16-year-old daughter of a local miner. He called it The Rising Sun Blues. Different versions of the song have been recorded in the 30s, 40s, and 50s by dozens of performers from Glenn Yarbrough to Pete Seeger to Leadbelly and the Weavers, but it reached the top of the charts after just one take on 18th of May, 1964. The song starts with the now-famous electric guitar, a minor chord arpeggio by Hilton Valentine. According to Valentine, he simply took Bob Dylan's chord sequence, Bob had done a version just before them, and played it as an arpeggio. The performance takes off with Burden's lead vocal, which has been variously described as howling, soulful, and as deep and gravelly as the northeast English coal town of Newcastle that spawned him. Finally, Alan Price's pulsating organ part, played on a Vox Continental, completes the sound. Burden later said, We were looking for a song that would grab people's attention. And House of the Rising Sun definitely did it. The Animals' rendition of the song is recognized as one of the classics of British pop music. Writer Lester Bangs labeled it as a brilliant rearrangement and a new standard rendition of an old standard composition. It ranked number 122 on Rolling Stone magazine's list of 500 greatest songs of all time. It's also one of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame's 500 songs that shaped rock and roll. You've got to know how to hold them, know how to fold them, know how to walk away, and know how to run, was the advice of the old gambler on the train bound for nowhere that traded his wise advice for a sip of the storyteller's whiskey. The Gambler was written by the Nashville songwriter Don Schlitz with the classic chorus lines that I just repeated. The song is told from the first-person perspective about a conversation with an old poker player on a train. The card shark gives life advice to the narrator in the form of poker metaphors before presumably dying in his sleep. Schlitz doesn't play poker, but the song isn't really about a card game. It's about handling what life gives you, what some would call, playing the hand you're dealt. The hold'em, fold'em phrase became a common saying and is one of those lyrics that sounds like it must have already existed, but Schlitz insists he had never heard it before when he came up with it. When he was trying to make it as a songwriter, Don Schlitz had a much more sensible job as a computer operator at Vanderbilt University. The songwriter Bob McDill, whose popular compositions include Good Old Boys Like Me from Don Williams and Gone Country with Alan Jackson, was his mentor, and Schlitz says it was on a walk home from McDill's office when he wrote most of this song. He typed out the words when he got home, but he didn't have an ending. It took him about six more weeks to complete the story with the old poker player, finally drifting off at the end. Schlitz wrote the song in August of 1976 when he was 23 years old. It took two years of shopping the song around Nashville before Bobby Bear recorded it on his album, Bear, at the urging of Shel Silverstein. Bear's version didn't catch on and was never released as a single, but other musicians took notice and recorded the song in 1978, including Johnny Cash, who put it on his album, Gone Girl. But it was Kenny Rogers who finally broke the song loose in a version produced by Larry Butler. His version was a number one country hit and even made its way to the Hot 100 at a time when country songs rarely crossed over to pop. The song had a huge impact on both Kenny Rogers and its writer, Don Schlitz. Rogers had three number one country hits under his belt, but the gambler gave him the title track to his biggest selling album. Schlitz was able to quit his day job, actually a night job, he worked the graveyard shift and become a full-time songwriter. Some of his other songs include He Thinks He'll Keep Her by Mary Chapin Carpenter, and on the other hand, And Forever and Ever Amen by Randy Travis, not to mention When You Say Nothing at All, which was performed and popularized by a number of country artists. The lyrics of The Gambler are now part of our collective consciousness. Some might not know that Kenny Rogers sang it, and hardly anyone outside of Nashville could tell you that Don Schlitz wrote it. But such is the life of most songwriters. And as a side note, Don Schlitz has written hundreds of great songs, has been awarded many times, and is known as one of the most successful songwriters in Nashville. Any Bee Gees fans out there? And how many of you diehards can name their first hit in the U.S.? The saddest mining story of all. And that's saying something because there's so many sad stories connected with mining, especially coal mining comes from Aberfan, South Wales, in the UK. I'm an old record buff, and I know a lot of things about the bands and the songs of the 60s and 70s, but I never knew what inspired the title of the first hit record for the Bee Gees until I got into this story. Their debut U.S. single was called New York Mining Disaster, 1941, and it was to be the first of 31 monster hits for Barry, Robin, and Maurice, the Brothers Gibb. It starts with the words... Have you seen my wife, Mr. Jones? And the first few stanzas read, In the event of something happening to me, there is something I would like you all to see. It's just a photograph of someone that I knew. Have you seen my wife, Mr. Jones? Do you know what it's like on the outside? Don't go talking too loud. You'll cause a landslide, Mr. Jones. I keep straining my ears to hear a sound. Maybe someone is digging underground. Or have they all given up and gone home to bed, thinking those who once existed must be dead? And here's the tragedy that inspired those lyrics. On the morning of October 21, 1966, a massive heap of coal waste tumbled down a mountainside into the small village of Aberfan, South Wales, demolishing an elementary school and several houses and burying 300 townsfolk, most of them children. As word of the disaster spread, hundreds of people from neighboring towns came to Aberfan, picks and shovels in hand, hoping to help with the rescue. 145 children were pulled and rescued from the rubble. Local miners continued to work around the clock for days to clear the debris, but after the first 24 hours, no one else came out alive. In the end, 144 people died. 116 of them were kids, mostly between the ages of 7 and 10. The rest were teachers and people who happened to be inside the surrounding homes. Coal mining in Aberfan had begun around 1869. A hundred years later, one of the biggest problems the town faced was how to dispose of the waste material generated from the mining. Their solution, as in many coal mining towns, was to pile it in trash heaps, or tips, as they're called in the UK, close to the mines. In Aberfan, the tips were situated on the slopes of the mountain surrounding the town. It was a painstaking process to transfer tons of coal waste up the side of the mountain. A series of trolley cars hauled it to a crane, which then dumped the waste on the tip. There was a problem, though. South Wales has a generally wet climate, which keeps the soil moist. On top of that, many of the coal chips were placed over underground springs. In the years before the disaster, water from the slopes had been a perennial issue for Aberfan. Regular floods caused much damage, leaving behind slimy black deposits of coal sludge. The townspeople repeatedly asked the National Coal Board, who owned the mine, for help in addressing the water problem but nothing was ever done. The resulting wet ground made for an unstable base, and that's ultimately what caused thousands of tons of coal sludge to break free of the tip and rush into the town below. The landslide was described as moving like water, but with twice the density. After the disaster, Aberfan's flooding problem was solved through the construction of a simple wall. On October 25, 1966, a mass funeral was held for the children. The Aberfan Disaster Fund raised over $1 with donations from around the world. The money was used to help rebuild the town and compensate the grieving families. Shamefully, the National Coal Board demanded that a large chunk of the funds be used to pay for removal of the tips that they had built. As a result of the disaster the Mines and Quarries Act of 1969 was passed which helped to ensure that no disused tips would pose a danger to other mining towns. For Eberfan, it's been a slow rebuilding process. After the tragedy, a sense of guilt settled over the town for not taking stronger measures to address the problem with the tips. Over half the survivors of the disaster have been diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder. As of 2011, all of the coal mines are closed but that has robbed the town of its main source of income. In April 2012, 46 years after the disaster, Queen Elizabeth visited Aberfan to open a new primary school. Back in 1966, the Queen was criticized for waiting eight days to visit the scene of the catastrophe. She has called it her biggest regret in her 60 years on the throne. Barry and Robin Gibbs had seen the headlines and wanted to memorialize the event that might bring light to it but it was due for release in the U.S., and no one there knew what or where Aberfam was. So they changed the place to New York, and the year to 1941. Where did you sleep last night? The lyrics from the 1994 Nirvana song read like this. My girl, my girl, don't lie to me. Tell me, where did you sleep last night? In the pines, in the pines, where the sun don't ever shine. I would shiver the whole night through. Her husband was a hard-working man, just about a mile from here. His head was found in the driver's wheel, but his body was never found. My girl, my girl, where will you go? I'm going where the cold wind blows, in the pines, in the pines, where the sun don't ever shine. I would shiver the whole night through. That song has a lot of history behind it. In the Pines, also known as Where Did You Sleep Last Night? and Black Girl is a traditional American folk song which dates back to at least the 1870s and is believed to be Southern Appalachian in origin. The identity of the song's author is unknown, but it has been recorded by many artists in numerous genres. Traditionally, it's most often associated with the American folk and blues musician Lead Belly, who recorded several versions in the 1940s, as well as the American bluegrass musician Bill Monroe, who helped popularize the song in a different variant, featuring lyrics about a train, among bluegrass and country audiences, with his versions recorded in the 1940s and 50s. Leadbelly, who we dedicated an episode to in our archives, told Alan Lomax that he had once heard it on an earlier recording, and that the song had been around for a long time, in many versions. Girl, don't lie to me, tell me where to sleep last night. In a pine, in a pine, oh, why the sun never shine I've achieved it night, too. Black girl, black girl. The song, I performed by the Four Pennies, reached the UK top twenty in nineteen sixty four. A live rendering by the American alternative rock band Nirvana, which reinterpreted Lead Belly's version and was recorded during their MTV Unplugged performance in 1993, helped introduce the song to a new generation. Nirvana's Kurt Cobain was a huge fan of Lead Belly's works. The first printed version of the song, compiled by Cecil Sharp, appeared in 1917 and comprised just four lines and a melody. Those lines are... Black girl, black girl, don't lie to me, where did you stay last night? I stayed in the pines, where the sun never shines, and shivered when the cold wind blows. Like numerous other folk songs, In the Pines was passed on from one generation and locale to the next by word of mouth. In 1925, a version of the song was recorded onto phonograph cylinder by a folk collector. This was the first documentation of the longest train variant of the song, which includes a verse about the longest train I ever saw. This verse probably began as a separate song that later merged into In the Pines. Lyrics in some versions about Joe Brown's coal mine and the Georgia line may refer to Joseph E. Brown, a former governor of Georgia, who famously leased convicts to operate coal mines in the 1870s. While early renditions which mention the head in the driver's wheel make clear the decapitation was caused by the train, some later versions would omit the reference to the train and reattribute the cause. Starting in 1926, commercial recordings of the song were made by various folk and bluegrass bands. In her 1970 PhD dissertation, Judith McCullough found 160 different permutations of the song, as well as rearrangement of three frequent elements the person who goes into the pines or who is decapitated is described as a man, woman, adolescent, husband, wife or parent, while the pines can be seen as representing sexuality, death, or loneliness. The train is described as killing a loved one, as taking one's beloved away, or as leaving an itinerant worker far from home. few songs reach our hearts. In the way that amazing grace does. It's probably the most beloved hymn of the last two centuries. The soaring spiritual, describing profound religious elation, is estimated to be performed 10 million times annually and has appeared on over 11,000 albums. It was referenced in Harriet Beecher Stowe's anti slavery novel, Uncle Tom's Cabin, and had a surge of popularity during two of the nation's greatest crises, the Civil War and the Vietnam War. Between 1970 and 1972, Judy Collins' recording spent 67 weeks on the chart and peaked at number five. Aretha Franklin, Ray Charles, Johnny Cash, Willie Nelson, and Elvis are among the many artists who have recorded the song. It is played at the funeral services for presidents heroes, police, firefighters, and many others. The song was written by former slave trader John Newton. This unlikely authorship forms the basis of Amazing Grace. The new Broadway musical, written by Broadway first-timer Christopher Smith, a former Philadelphia policeman, and playwright Arthur Geron, which tells Newton's life story from his early days as a licentious libertine in the British Navy to his religious conversion and taking up the abolitionist cause. But the real story behind the somewhat sentimental musical told in Newton's autobiography reveals a much more complex and ambiguous history. So writes David Sheward for Bio in an article titled The Real Story Behind Amazing Grace. Newton was born in 1725 in London to a Puritan mother who died two weeks before his seventh birthday and a stern sea captain father who took him to sea at age 11. After many voyages and a reckless youth of drinking, Newton was impressed into the British Navy. After attempting to desert, he received eight dozen lashes and was reduced to the rank of common seaman. While later serving on the Pegasus, a slave ship, Newton did not get along with the crew who left him in West Africa with Amos Clough, a slave trader. Clo gave Newton to his wife, Princess Paya, an African royal who treated him vilely as she did her other slaves. During the voyage home, the ship was caught in a horrendous storm off the coast of Ireland and almost sank. Newton prayed to God and the cargo miraculously shifted to fill a hole in the ship's hull and the vessel drifted to safety. Newton took this as a sign from the Almighty and marked it as his conversion to Christianity. He did not radically change his ways at once. His total reformation was more gradual. I cannot consider myself to have been a believer in the full sense of the word until a considerable time afterwards, he later wrote. He did begin reading the Bible at this point, however, and began to view his captives with a much more sympathetic view. Years after leaving the slave trade, he renounced his former slaving profession by publishing a blazing pamphlet called Thoughts upon the Slave Trade. The tract described the horrific conditions on slave ships, and Newton apologized for making a public statement so many years after participating in the trade. It will always be a subject of humiliating reflection to me that I was once an active instrument in a business at which my heart now shudders. The pamphlet was so popular it was reprinted several times and sent to every member of Parliament. Under the leadership of William Wilberforce, the English civil government outlawed slavery in Great Britain in 1807, and Newton lived to see it, dying in December of that year. The passage of the Slave Trade Act is depicted in the 2006 film, also called Amazing Grace, starring Albert Finney as Newton and Eon Griffith as Wilberforce. It's an excellent film if you get a chance to see it. And next, our bonus track. See how long it takes you to figure out who this person is. Salvatore had worked his way up from a dead end in record merchandising in L.A. to becoming legendary record producer Phil Spector's go-to grunt, carrying the much more respectable title of West Coast Promotion Manager for Philly's Records, Spector's label. He had done it with street smarts, his ability to sell, and his uncanny nerve. It was the end of 1964, and the past year had been good for Salvatore, but Spectre was in a slump. The British invasion had taken hold, and the demand for all-girl groups, like Spectre's Ronettes, was waning. Sal was tasked with the job of delivering a few Ronettes recordings to the DJ at KFWB, but after listening to Be My Baby and Walking in the Rain, the DJ said, Sal, this stuff just doesn't get it. You're competing against the Beatles, the Dave Clark Five, the Rolling Stones. It's a new style of rock and roll now. Sal knew the radio charts didn't lie. The Brits were setting the pace. Dejected, he made his call to Phil, relaying the events of the day. And At that point, he made one of the biggest mistakes of his career. Phil, we need to change the sound. All he got in response was silence. After that, his desk contents. It was a long winter, of course not so bad a winter in L.A. for Sal, as he was no longer employed with Philly's Records. The only bright spot being his live-in girlfriend, Sherlyn Lapierre, age 18, who could carry a tune pretty well. And if there was one thing Sal had learned about music, he knew how to cut demos and promote. And he had connections now, so he and his raven-haired girlfriend started doing clubs. He dressed in shaggy sheepskin vest, and she, well, looking good and sounding even better. They called themselves Caesar and Cleo. They cut a record called Baby Don't Go for reprise in late 1964, which got them better gigs and paid the rent on the tiny bungalow they were sharing. But they hadn't gone national yet. One night at home, he began scribbling down unrelated lyrics on a discarded sheet of thin cardboard that had been part of the latest laundry delivery. The more he wrote, the more he started feeling that this one might lead to something good. Then it hit him, and he raced to the garage to the banged-up old piano he kept there. He only knew a few chords, but the words in the song started coming to him in a rush. He called his contacts at Gold Star Studios and arranged the recording session with the legendary Wrecking Crew, who put all the right touches on a song called I Got You, Babe, which, when released days later, made it all the way up the charts in the U.S. and the U.K. to number one. After years of trying and failing, Salvatore, Sonny Bono, had made it to the top, the big time, with the girl he loved, Cher. And all that was the change, of course. But that's the way history goes. Thanks for joining us at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. We hope you enjoyed this romp through musical history and the story behind the story that so many of you comment upon in your reviews. Please take a moment to write us a nice one on iTunes. It helps us in the rankings. Also, tune into our sister show, 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales, and catch stories from writers like Jack London, Edgar Allan Poe, and Guy de Maupassant. These are hand-picked stories and a great way to get back into the classics. One suggestion, find a relative, a son or a daughter, or a dad and a mom and find a relaxing spot in the house near a crackling fire, and listen to one of our stories together. For the older ones, it will recall the days before TV, and it will prove to be a moment you will treasure. The same goes for our archives at 1001 Heroes. All our episodes are available at all the podcast sites like iTunes, Stitcher.com, and Podbay.fm, as well as at www.1001storiespodcast.com. We're now listened to in over 200 countries and receiving millions of listens annually between the two shows, all thanks to you. A number of people write to share ideas and many share opinions and reviews online. Thank you so much for these. You inspire me to always try and do my best. We're just a one-man show with no team of writers or audio specialists or editors. And yes, our episodes are homespun. I love storytelling and sharing them all with you. Based on what I hear from you, I think that love for stories comes through in my work. Thanks so much to all of you. This is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn, and this is our story.